Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Today we're going to be reading chapter 11 of As It Is Translated Correctly. We'll be on pages 174 to 199. This will be the conclusion of this book. And the title is A Marvelous Work and a Wonder. We'll get right into the reading after we dedicate the program. Thank you for listening. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank thee, Father, for being able to have the technology to share these teachings worldwide through the internet we thank the father for the people who wrote the different books that made up this book and for Ogden Kraut for compiling these things together so we could learn these things and ponder over these things that we've been reading in this book We thank Thee, Father, for the atonement of Jesus Christ and for what He did for us and for what all of the prophets have done for us in delivering Thy message to the people. We thank Thee, Father, for the Spirit that helps us to know truth, that we might not be led in false ways and false paths, that we might come back into Thy presence and be with Thee that we might be tools in thine hand to bring about Zion's redemption. We love thee, Father, and we ask for thy blessings to be upon us as we talk about these things, this great, marvelous work and a wonder that the scriptures have been able to come through the time of this earth and that We had a a prophet who was obedient unto thine will in writing down the correct um, passages of scripture as you inspired him and for the scribes that were able to help him in doing these things that we might ponder truth but also have thy spirit to be with us as we try to come to the correct interpretation with revelation and inspiration for me. We love thee, Father, and we ask for thy blessings to be upon us and say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A Marvelous Work and a Wonder, Chapter 11 of As It Is Translated Correctly, pages 174 to 199. Conclusion. 
old and new revelation. No one can deny the inspiration and spiritual help the Bible has been to the nations of the earth. Children sitting upon their mother's knee have listened with awe and adoration to the marvelous dealings of God with man. Sunday school teachers have enthralled and persuaded men to a better course through life. In the depths of sorrow and difficult trials, good men continue to turn with hope and faith to the Bible. It has been a fortress against trouble and a comfort in sorrow and a compass through the darkness of life. The Bible has remained the most important and widely read document of spiritual teaching throughout the history of man. No one should deny the veracity and divine uh, purity of the revelations originally given to those ancient prophets. Their inspiration and the prophecies of those scriptures are beyond the capacity of man to create. But no serious advocate of the Bible should be so vain or blind in his faith to say that the Bible is inerrant or perfect or without error. Through centuries of man handling, the copyists and translators have had to use the wisdom and weakness of man to transmit and publish those scriptures, resulting in inconsistencies and defects within its pages. We're on page 175 at 3%. And by the way, uh, this is probably going to be a two-parter, but we'll see if we can get through it all. It's, it's a pretty long conclusion. Some of these books, like, they have very short conclusions. <laughs> but this one is not one of those books, so. However, when the prophet Joseph Smith admitted that the Bible was the word of God as far it is translated correctly, he, arou- he arose the hostilities of priests and ministers everywhere. They called it blasphemy and an impious attack against the Bible, and they still do. Thus, it is necessary to properly evaluate the Bible as the Word of God, or at least determine which portion is genuine. Brigham Young once said, I have heard ministers of the gospel declare that they believed every word in the Bible as uh, was the Word of God. I have said to them, you believe more than I do. I believe the words of God are there. I believe the words of the devil are there. I believe that the words of men and the words of angels are there. And that is not all. I believe that the words of the dumb brute are there. I recollect one of the prophets writing and prophesying against Israel. And the animal he rode rebuked his madness. Do you believe all this is the word of God? If you do, you certainly believe more than I do. The words of the Lord are the words of the Lord, and the revelation, revelations God has given concerning himself are true. Journal of Discourses, volume 14, page 280. A quick analysis of the content of the Bible reveals that it is a complete composition in many things. Number one, histories. Number two, biographies. Number three, laws. 
Statutes and Ordinances. Number four, Principles, Doctrines, and Counsel. Number five, Psalms, Poetry, and Songs. Number six, Genealogies. Number seven, Blessings and Cursings. Number eight, The Words of Man. Number nine, The Words of God. And number ten, The Words of the Devil and Evil Spirits. Page 176, 7%. The Bible grew through the centuries as wise men and prophets preserved, preserved valuable information in written form. However, it was a great difficulty and sacrifice that each prophet tried to bring God's word to his particular generation. Because of tremendous ridicule and persecution, these prophets were often killed. The greatest opposition usually comes from those who profess to know the most about God. Acting as religious leaders, they led the mobs that killed the prophets. Such was the case even with the Savior himself, his worst enemies being the clergy. He described them as the blind leaders of the blind. They would accept no new revelation no new doctrine, no new scriptures. Does that have a familiar ring? The reason that the clergy in all ages have been afraid of new revelation or scripture is because they may have endangered it, because it may have endangered their craft or their paycheck. <laughs> We have seen men who make a business out of selling religion. They become so dedicated to the money making ministry that some even say that they must raise so many millions of dollars or they will die. They are devoted to dollars instead of doctrine. New revelation and scripture are feared because they cannot be controlled by these men and such direction might disturb their priestcraft business. It is the professional clergy of today that totally condemns everything that Joseph Smith has written or spoken. They see nothing inspirational, truthful, or worthy of their endorsement. Yet, with that same bias and rash judgment, they accept every word of the Bible as the word of God, including the Song of Solomon. Ministers vs. Scholars Consider a few quotes from the rantings and ravings of contemporary sectarian ministers compared to some of their Protestant and Catholic textual scholars. We're on page 177 at 11%. The writing of the Church Fathers, some of them contemporary with the Apostle John, contain the text of practical, or I'm sorry, practically the entire New Testament. These writings match accurately with the New Testament manuscripts we use. This is further collaboration that we have the Word of God as it was originally given. And that comes from the Mormon Illusion by Floyd McLevin, page 39. Compare. Daniel Ropes saying that due to errors in the copyists and the intentional changes, 
the New Testament texts have been subject to numerous outrages, outrages and quotes. Origen, who lived from 185 to 243 A.D., said, Today the, facts, the fact is evident that there are many different differences in the manuscript, either through the negligence of certain copyists or the perverse audacity of some in correcting the text. The oldest copies of the New Testament do not in all details read alike. And that comes from the Apostasy of of the Divine Church by James L. Barker, page 14. The last area that the Mormon Church uses to attack the apostolic authority of the Bible is that of supposed contradictions. Mormons are taught almost from infancy that the Bible is full of contradictions and is therefore not a perfect revelation from God. In my opinion, there is not one genuine contradiction in the Bible, although they have been taught that the Bible is full of contradictions. They usually can't produce even one example if pressed. And that comes from The Maze of Mormonism by Walter Martin, page 288. So basically, he's uh, some theologian-like sectarian that has... uh, I don't know, it's just ignorant as all hell because, like, they don't. Like, we've gone over the contradictions. Some of them are contradictions, or they seem like they are until you receive revelation and you understand them, like, how they both are true. Um, But some of them are just contradictions because things have changed. Anyway, but then you have your textual uh, critic here. Professor Norton estimated that there are as many as 60,000 manuscript copies of the Gospels by the end of the second century, which contain 50,000 various readings. Genesis and the Gospels, 150, as quoted in the um, Scrivener's Criticism of the New Testament, page 8, on page 178 at 15%. The Old Testament, like all other books of antiquity, has been propagated by transcriptions. And thus it has happened, even in spite of great care with with which the Jews, who were filled with unbounded reverence for the Holy Scripture, watched over their preservation and transmission without injury that they could not escape the common lot of all ancient books. In the course of repeated copying, many small errors crept into the text, and various readings came into existence, which lie before us in in the text, as it is attested in the records belonging to the various centuries. The copyists have committed these errors by seeing or hearing wrongly by faithlessness of memory and by other misunderstandings, yet not arbitrary or intentionally. Introduction in the Old Testament by Kiel, Volume 2, page 365. A devoted Christian and a linguist who was 
conversant with 26 languages, Robert Dick Wilson, claimed that he doubted that even one word in a thousand had been changed or carried any different meaning from the original God gave. And that comes from the Mormon Illusion by Floyd McLevin, page 40. But the textualist critics will say, uh, and this is another quote, in the Hebrew manuscripts we ha- that we have examined, some 800,000 various readings actually occur. As to the Hebrew consonants, how many as to the vowel points and accents, no man knows. That's because they, they didn't have vowel points. So, like, you might have three con- consonants make up one word or it can make up another word. So, like, uh, for instance, in Ezekiel, it talks about this uh, evil woman um, in a lead pot. Um, Isha or Aisha. I can't remember if that's right. I know it's somewhere close to that. But, like, the same three consonants also mean uh, fire and could be translated as evil fire. Uh, but in most, like, the King James Version and most of the versions, um, they talk about the evil woman who's in the lead pot who's flying through the air and, like, this Scud missile rocket thing. <laughs> and, um, like, we know now that, you know, that's a thing. And the evil fire is probably a nuclear weapon. But they didn't understand that, so instead of saying fire for the same three consonants without the vowel points, they said woman. Um, And they did uh, eventually um, add vowel points to their language, to their alphabet, but that was after um, the diaspora, and uh, way hundreds of years after Jesus Christ, when they were being uh, kicked out all over the world, and they couldn't keep their oral um, traditions of, of like reading the scriptures and then the rabbi or whoever saying, what, well, these three letters actually mean this word. So they came up with this, this system of vowels so that people could read it correctly without having to have instruction from uh, rabbis or scholars. So let's see here. All right, so we're on page 179 at 19%. On the other hand, we have thousands of manuscripts and portions of manuscripts from widely differing places concerning Jesus Christ and his word. This means that no scribe, even if God had allowed it, could have changed something in the translation without being caught by another biblical scholar. For these manuscripts to have been compared assiduously again and again by both the enemies and friends of Jesus Christ and that comes from the Mormon illusion by Floyd McLevin page 41 but then the scholars would say this it would require not a volume but volumes to discuss all the cases of alleged discrepancies and that's a professor of theology or theology Dr. Charles Hodge Volume 1, page 169. Mr. Anderson compares here the power and prestige, the historic authenticity and infallibility of the Bible with the official books of Mormonism, The Inside of Mormonism by uh, Louis T. Talbot, 
and that's the back cover. Um, okay, but the scholars will say even the earliest and best manuscripts that we possess are not totally free of transmissional error. Numbers are occasionally miscopied. The spelling of proper names is occasionally garbled, and there are examples of the same types of uh, scribal error that appear in other ancient documents as well. And quote Bible difficulties by Gleason Archer, page 27, and we're on page 180 at 22%. Over 5,000 manuscripts and bits and pieces of manuscripts of the Word of God have been found virtually all over Europe and Asia. So we do not have to depend on just one translation from one manuscript. The harmony and accuracy of these manuscripts are amazing. And that comes from uh, the book, The Mormon Illusion, Floyd McLeaven, page uh, 39. Um, but then you compare the textual, uh, the professors of theology, or uh, the textual critics. Anyway, so the next quote. It is a fact that new, the New Testament text has been transmitted to us through, through the hands of copyists. It is also a fact that since these hands were human, they were susceptible to slips and faults in all human hands. We do not wish to leave the impression that all textual variants can be lightly dismissed. Some variations involve not only a word or two, but a whole, a whole verse and even several verses. Certainly variations of this kind are more than trivial. And quote how we got the Bible by Neil Lightfoot, pages 53 through 55. And when a person hears it stated that the, uh, I don't know how to say this word, in the collation of the manuscripts for Griesbach's edition of the New Testament, as many as 150,000 various readings were discovered, he is ready to suppose everything must be in a state of uncertainty. And that's from the book Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible by John Haley, page 49. Sadly, those caught in the web of Mormon deceit have been taught that the Bible cannot give them assurance of God and, and his acts... In his acts. Instead, they are taught that the Bible has been corrupted through the centuries despite the completely contrary evidence of the precise science of textual criticisms. Oh, that's an, I think, well, I don't know. It's in parentheses, so I don't know if that was part of the quote. Maybe it was an assertion by Ogden Kraut. I don't know. Anyway, and that its words today cannot be trusted. Why this unreasonable position by a sect which claims to restore the gospel? And that comes from the anti-Mormon book, The Maze of Mormonism by Walter Martin, page 45 through 46. Let me just say, um, so this is just an observation. 
we've got the Christians who believe that the Bible is an inerrant word of God, but they have all of their different interpretations. But then we've got um, people who trust in the Bible, but then we've got people who trust in Joseph Smith. Or what do I mean by this? There's a lot of people out there who trust in Joseph Smith and they cling on every word he says, but they don't go to God and get revelation for themselves. So you've got these Christians who are making an idol out of the Bible itself and out of the words of mortal men and their own wisdom and their own interpretation and their own knowledge instead of going to God. And then you've got the same kind of people on the Mormon side or on the Restoration side who cling on the words of Joseph Smith without getting revelation. They get their own misinterpretations. Um, they come to their own uh, ideas of things. Um, as somebody who has researched this stuff in depth for many, many years, I it's just... I have come to understand that you cannot trust um, anything but the Spirit. You can come to ideas and conclusions in your mind as you study these things out, but you must go to God and get revelation for yourself. And that God is no respecter of persons, and that he wants all of us to be prophets according to Moses. He wants us all to receive revelation for ourselves. Because when, at the end of the day, the only interpretation that matters is God's interpretation. The only doctrine that matters is the doctrine that God promotes through his revelation. With inspiration. There's In the restoration, we've got a lot of lies We've got second, third, fourth-hand accounts. We have um, accounts that come uh, 20, 30, 40 years after the fact. Uh, we have um, there's evidence of people who are saying things that they they witness certain things. Well, at the same time, we know that when the thing happened, uh, they were actually over in Europe, not in America. This happens all the time, and it's just a maze of lies. Now, I know Joseph Smith was a true prophet, but you can't just trust something because somebody wrote it down. Joseph Smith supposedly said this according to these people, you know, to certain people, and, and they're talking about, like, stuff years and years later in their journals, or, or you'll have, well, I heard Joseph Smith say this, and they get it from a second or third hand account, and then they write it down. You have to get revelation for yourself. And Joseph Smith taught in April of 1844 in the Times and Seasons that if it contradicts the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or the Doctrine and Covenants that he had before his death, then you have to set them down as imposters. But if your if your interpretation of of whatever doc pet doctrine that you have contradicts the scriptures, then you've got to consider yourself an imposter. And it's hard though because like the scriptures are full of errors. 
but also we've got, and this doesn't even cover this in this um, in this book, but we have the Deuteronomists who decided that they were going to um, hold on here that they were going to add things. Ugh. Okay, that they were going to add things. Or take thing, uh, take things away that, um, in the uh, the first five books of the Torah, and possibly other places in the Old Testament and the Scriptures. Like it doesn't even go into that in this book, but that was that's a problem that we face as well. And you've got these scholars or so-called theologians that want you to put your 100% full trust in a document. In, in a book and the words of individuals with their interpretation rather than going to God and finding out the truth for yourself. So these people who put all their trust in Joseph Smith alone without revelation, uh, or they put all of their trust in, in their, uh, their pastors and their ministers or whatever, these people are they who are some of one or some of another. And I think it's DNC section 76 that talks about the different divisions in the kingdom of heaven and the different resurrections. And those people who put their trust in men without revelation from God, they are the ones who become telestial beings. And this, this happens with uh, people who uh, believe Joseph Smith as well. They put their trust and they make Joseph Smith an idol instead of going to God and finding out the truth from him. And they'll argue tooth and nail about um, about their pet doctrines, but they don't ever get revelation for themselves. And they only look at things from one side of, of the picture and try to come up with these conclusions without even looking at the rest of Scripture and considering the whole thing. So anyway, um, let's get back into the reading. We're at 25% right now. Sadly, those caught in the web of Mormon deceit have been taught that the Bible cannot give them assurance of God in his acts. See, like, the Bible without revelation is a fairy tale as far as the world is, uh, you know, considers it. You have to get revelation. It, I, I don't know. I just, I can't express how important it is to get revelation for yourself and stop trusting in all of these these mortal men and, and like i i was talking about section 76 before like if you'll notice you go back to that it says even they who who believe in jesus like those people who believe jesus without going to the father and getting revelation for themselves to make sure that the interpretation that they have is the correct interpretation that God has like they're celestial beings anyway um, back into the reading instead they are taught that the Bible has been corrupted through the centuries despite the completely contrary evidence of the precise science of, te of textual criticism see they have their agenda these people that write this crap they have their agenda and they they ignore one side. So there's a picture to be seen and they will focus on one part of the picture 
and lie about the rest. Continuing with the quote, and that that its words today cannot be trusted. Why this unreasonable position by a sect who claims the restored gospel? And that's a maze of Mormonism by Walter Martin, page 45 through 46. I think I already read that. Um, I might have accidentally gone back. I, I had some stuff happen with my uh, my iPad that I used to, to read this. So anyway, we'll continue on. So we're on page 181 at 26%. Compare often a scribe with a copy before he, um, before him mistakes one word for another, and so by chance copies down the wrong word. And we talked about that. Like you have like three consonants, and um, you don't have the vowel markers in the early Hebrew. Um, so when they made the vowel markers, they were like, okay, well, is this word this or is this word that? And then they were like, oh, well, I think it's this. And then they put the vowel markers for that. But when the prophet saw the vision, it was actually talking about something else. But the copyists didn't understand, you know, so they they make their best guesses. Errors of omission and addition are common in all the manuscripts. Words sometimes are admitted by the copyist for no apparent reason, simply an unintentional omission. What presents a more serious problem to the textual critics are the various readings which have been are purposely inserted by the scribe. We are not to think that these insertions were made by some dishonest scribe who simply wanted to tamper with the text. Almost always the intention of the scribe is good and he only wants to correct what appears to be an error in the text. And that's uh, from How We Got the Bible by Neil Lightfoot, a professor of Bible of Bible Abilene with the degrees from Baylor and Duke, pages 47 and 48. That no candid, intelligent student of the Bible would deny that it contains numerous discrepancies and its statements taken primera facia not infrequently conflict with or contradict one another may safely be presumed. <laughs> that fact has been more or less recognized by Christian scholars in all ages uh, that's a quote from Discrepancies of the Bible by John Haley, page 2. Therefore, when Joseph Smith confessed that the Bible was the word of God as far as, as it was translated correctly, he was in agreement with the best biblical scholars, but disagreed with the priestcraft sectarians. If these ministers of modern Christendom couldn't see any errors in the Bible... But this young man could. It is obvious he is worth listening to. Page 182. Veracity of the Bible, anti-Mormon versus Mormons. It is important that we should also consider and respond to some, uh, some statements by anti-Mormons regarding the Latter-day Saint beliefs in the Bible. For example... For 150 years, Mormonism has butchered the Bible, declaring it inadequate 
reflecting on its translators and transcribers, accusing the priests of corrupting it. It, its missionaries multiplied thousands strong, have traveled the width and breadth of the land, belittling the Bible, attempting to persuade their hearers that it is totally inadequate and unworthy of their trust. Mormonism has never been a friend of the Bible. Its proponents often sound like the writings of Thomas Paine and Robert Ingersoll. And that's the uh, the Utah Evan- Evangel, um, December 1983, page 6. How ridiculous and absolutely false are their rantings. As mentioned previously, the 8th LDS article of faith states that the Mormon belief in the Bible. The missionaries carry the Bible with them along with the Book of Mormon and other scriptures and use it to defend and support their doctrines and their church. They even point out biblical prophecies that foretell the restoration of the gospel in this dispensation. A few of these passages are quoted and explained below. Number one, Joseph, a fruitful bough. Joseph Joseph is a fruitful, and this comes from Genesis chapter 49. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. The blessings of thy fathers have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors, Jacob's progenitors, unto the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brother. And that's Genesis chapter 49, verses 22 and 26. We're on page 183, at 33%. Orson Pratt explained these verses. From the prediction, it will be perceived that Jacob prevailed with God and obtained a greater blessing in behalf of the tribe of Joseph than what Abraham and Isaac, his progenitors, had obtained. While the blessing of Jacob's progenitors was limited to the land of Palestine, Joseph had confirmed upon him a blessing or country above and far greater than Palestine. A country at a distance, represented by the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills, some of the branches of the fruitful bough of Joseph were to spread far abroad from the parent tree. They were to run over the wall of the mighty ocean. They were to become a multitude of nations in the midst of the earth. There among the everlasting hills, they were to be made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. The Book of Mormon testifies that America is the land of Joseph given to them by promise. According to the Book of Mormon, all of the great western continent with the valleys, hills, mountains, riches, and resources pertaining thereunto was given to the remnant of Joseph as their land of promise. And that comes from Orson Pratt's works, page 20 through 21. And I've talked about this before, but the everlasting hills spoken of by by Jacob or um, Israel, because his name was changed to Israel, 
uh, to his son Joseph in Genesis chapter 49 are the, the, the Rockies and the Andes Mountains. They are the only mountain chain that go from the, the southernmost hemisphere of South America all the way to the northernmost hemisphere of North America. No other mountain chain on earth is uninterrupted in such a way as these mountains are. So, and when, um, when he talks about the branches of his tree going over the wall or his descendants going over uh, an impenetrable, impenetrable barrier, according to the ancients, it's talking about the oceans that were crossed to get to this continent. But let us not forget that it was just some of the branches that came to this continent. Others of the branches of Joseph spread out into northern Europe and even into um, into Pakistan and India and those places as well. So, anyway, number two, the two sticks of Joseph, uh, the two sticks of Judah and Joseph, and that's Ezekiel chapter thirty-seven. Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. So the stick is a record that is written upon. Then take another stick or a record that has written upon and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and for all the house of Israel, his companions and join them one to another unto one stick and they shall become one in thine hand. Ezekiel 37, 16, and 17. We're on page 184 at 37%. Continuing with Orson Pratt's explanation, Ezekiel was commanded to write upon two sticks, one for Judah and and the other for Joseph, after which he was commanded to join them together unto one. And when the children of Israel should make inquiry... What these two united writings of Judah and Joseph meant, he was to say unto them that the Lord would join the writings of Joseph with those of Judah, immediately after which he would take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they had gone, and would gather them on every side and bring them into their own land and that he would make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and that one king should be king to them all, and that they should no more be nation or kingdoms. Ezekiel testifies that the writings of Joseph should be joined with the writings of Judah. Mr. Smith presents this generation with a book consisting of several hundred pages professing to be the sacred writings of the inspired prophets of the tribe of Joseph, who's, who anciently inhabited the great western hemisphere. Ezekiel testifies that Israel should be gathered, never again to be scattered, immediately after the union of these two records. The professed record of Joseph brought to, to light by Mr. Smith testifies in the most positive language that this is that this is the age in which Israel shall be gathered through the instrumentality of the word and power of God contained in the two records Ezekiel uttered 
the prediction, Mr. Smith presented a professed fulfillment. And that comes from the words of um, Orson Pratt's works, pages 11 and 12. Or on page 185 at 41%. Record to come out of the ground. And thou shalt be brought down, and shalt speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust. And thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. Isaiah chapter 29 verse 4. Orson Pratt again elaborates, Mr. Smith testified that the plates from which the book was translated were taken out of the ground from whence they were originally deposited by the prophet Moroni, that the book containing them was a composed was composed of stone so constructed as to exclude a great degree of moisture from the soil. Isaiah, as if to impress it upon the minds of those who should live in the future generation, gives no less than four repetitions of the same uh, prediction in the same passages, informing us in the most definite language that after Israel should be brought down, they should speak in a very familiar manner out of the ground and whisper low out of the dust. Mr. Smith has been an instrument in the hands of God of fulfilling this prediction to the very letter. He has taken out of the ground the ancient history of one half of our globe, the sacred records of a great nation of Israel, the writings of a remnant of the tribe of Joseph who once flourished as a great and powerful nation on the Western Hemisphere the moldering ruins of their ancient forts towers cities proclaim their former greatness in mournful contrast with their present their present side condition they have been brought down like all the rest of israel but the words of their their ancient prophets speak out of the ground and whisper out of the dust to the ears of the present generation. Uh, and we're on page 186 at 45%. Revealing in very familiar manner the history of the ancient Americas, which before was an entirely unknown to the nations. Isaiah says that Israel should speak out of the ground. Mr. Smith says that he obtained the writings of Joseph from out of the ground and quote and that's Orson Pratt's works by um, Orson Pratt of course by um, our pages 14 and 15 4 the book delivered to the learned and unlearned and the vision of all has become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed which men deliver to one that is learned saying read this I pray thee And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. And again, Orson Pratt. 
Soon after obtaining the plates, a number of the characters were correctly transcribed and sent to some of the most learned individuals in the United States to see if they could translate them. Among the rest, they were presented to Professor Anton of New York City, but no man was found able to read them by his own learning or wisdom. Mr. Smith thought an unlearned man testifies that he was commanded to translate them through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and by the aid of the Urim and Thummim, not the rock and the hat, by the way, and that the Book of Mormon is that translation. All this was fulfilled before Mr. Smith was aware that it had been so clearly predicted by Isaiah. He sent the words of a book, which he found, as before stated, to Professor Anton, but it was a sealed writing to the learned professor, meaning he couldn't understand what it meant. It was sealed because he didn't have the knowledge to translate it. The aboriginal language of ancient America could not be deciphered by him. He was much, uh, as much puzzled as the wise men of Babylon were to interpret the unknown writings upon the wall, and we're on page 187 at 49%. Human wisdom and learning, in this case, were altogether insufficient. It required another, Daniel, who was found in the person of Mr. Smith. And that's the end of that quote by, let's see, Orson Pratt's works, pages um, 15 and 16. A marvelous work and a wonder. So this is topic five. And you know what? I'm not going to pause it, but I do need to take a drink. So just hold on for just one second. One of the things that kind of sucks about reading so much, especially out loud, is my mouth gets dry. All right, uh, topic five. A marvelous work and a wonder. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Isaiah chapter 29 verse 14. Orson Pratt concludes, What a marvelous work! What a wonder! How the wisdom of the wise and the learned are made to perish by the gift of interpretation given to the unlearned. If the Book of Mormon is what it professes to be, a sacred record, then it must be the very book mentioned in Isaiah's predictions. Orson Pratt's works, page uh, 16. Topic 6. Another Angel with the Everlasting Gospel. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So this is from Revelations chapter 14, verse 6. And this is a vision of the last days. This angel coming from the midst of heaven with the everlasting gospel. Okay? Orson Pratt also commented on this New Testament passage. How does 
now how does this testimony of Joseph Smith agree with the book of John's prophecy given on the isle at Pas- Patmos? John testified that when the discrepant or the dispensation of the gospel is again again committed to the nations, it shall be through the medium of an angel from heaven. Joseph Smith testified that uh, that that a dispensation of the gospel for all nations has been committed to him by an angel, Moroni, that one uttered the prediction and the other testified to its fulfillment. Through Mr. Smith, though Mr. Smith had taught a perfect doctrine, yet if he had testified that his doctrine was not restored by an angel, all would have once have been known him to be an imposter. How came Mr. Smith, if an imposter, to not really discover a perfect doctrine, but also to discover the precise medium through which the doctrine should be restored to the earth? John testified that when the everlasting gospel is restored to the earth, it shall be by an angel Mr. Smith testified that it was restored by an angel and in no other way. This is another presumptive evidence that he was sent of God. Orson Pratt's works, pages 6 and 7. And we're at 54%. So we're at 54% on page 188. And um, I'm going to do a part two of this. When we come back, I'm going to do another podcast, The Bible as a Guide. So like I said, this is a pretty long chapter. And you know what? Um, I'm kind of tired. (laughs) So this week, I had an interesting week. (laughs) Um, My first day on my first load... I was headed up the mountain called Indian on Highway 191 in Utah going towards Duchesne and Roosevelt, and it was snowing, but the chain lights weren't on. Well, if it's snowing, uh, there's a lot of time when it'll snow for a minute, and then it will, uh, it'll be fine. It's just wet roads. The snow melts when it hits the road, and it was like 38 degrees, so I was like, okay, well, the chain light's not on. The people who control the chain light are in, and in control of the pass didn't turn it on. So I was like, okay, well, I, I guess I'll just go and I'll put chains on. So I go up and there's this hairpin turn or a switchback. And like a couple hundred yards before the switchback, it, it went to a whiteout. <laughs> and I was sliding all over the place. And the only reason I was able to make it up without chains with my truck and my trailer Um, was because every time a loaded truck would come down the hill, I'd hurry up and slide over and get in their tracks until another truck would start to come or would come down the hill. And then I'd get back into the snow and slide all over the place. And like, I think that the semi trucks that are coming down the mountain should just get over on the other side and not do what they're doing, whatever. But, um, like, let the guy who doesn't have chains on stay in that thing. But whatever, that's not that's not how it works. So, anyway, I'm sliding all over the place. The back of my truck or the front of my trailer is sliding one direction and my steers are sliding another. And I'm trying to, like, 
keep this momentum going. But like if you put the RPMs up on the truck too high, they will spin uh, too much and not get any traction. So you're like trying to like do this feathering thing with your pedal. Anyway, um, I made it up to the top. Didn't have to chain. Made it up by the grace of God. Barely made it. And then went down the other side very slowly because, it, you know, it, eight, it's an 8% grade. And the summit of this mountaintop that I go over is um, 9,114 feet. So anyway, I get over. I get loaded. And then I come back. And then I go back over and I have to chain up. So that was the first day. Um Let's see. And then the next day, um, they only gave us one load. We usually do two because the tanks at the oil transfer place where we transfer from the trucks over to the rail cars that go down to Houston, to the refinery in Houston, like the places, uh, you know, they can only take so much oil before they're topped off because the trains haven't been coming regularly, so they're full. So anyway, I lost the load because of that. Um and then the next day I had to chain up and uh, drive in winter conditions. So I only got one load that day. And then the next day um, I got one load and I had to, um, I had a breakdown. As I was unloading, my, airba- my airbag blew on the trailer um, and I lost all my air pressure and I was stuck at the unload facility until a mechanic could come back off my brakes and cage them and then crimp off the airline going to the airbag and I was able to limp it back to the uh, to the shop and I lost a load because of that as well so I yeah I've had an interesting week this load or this this pay period I should have been able to get 16 loads and with everything that happened, I was only able to get 10. So that's actually a lot of money that I, I lost because um, in, in pay because I, lo- I wasn't able to do it all. But anyway, I'm going to I'm going to do a part two and I'll just come back later and uh, and do that. So we'll, like I said, we'll be on page 188 at 55 percent and we're going to start with the Bible as a guide. Thank you for listening, everyone. Take care. God bless. And goodbye.